Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and in the words of the beloved new metal band Stained, it's been a while since we've done a podcast. We've been hard at work on the summer issue of Movie Maker Magazine, featuring our awesome guest today, Nardeep Kermi, the writer, director, and star of the magnificent new film Land of Gold, out now on Max, which some clueless, outdated dorks may still be calling HBO Max. But no, it's Max. And if you hear us calling it HBO Max in this interview, that's because we recorded this episode a few weeks ago. Nardeep is an extremely multi-talented creator, as you're about to hear. And Land of Gold is a deeply felt story about a Punjabi American truck driver who is about to become a father and meets a Mexican-American girl in need of help. We're about to get into the film and his other projects, as well as how Mexican Indian food helped spark this project. But also, in my research for this podcast, I watched the video for It's Been a While by beloved new metal band Stained. And I'm shocked to report that not only is the singer smoking in the video, but also the band is surrounded by open flames as they perform. The early 2000s were truly a bolder time. Long story short, this podcast proudly endorses smoking and even more proudly endorses Land of Gold. And to be totally clear, Stained has nothing to do with the movie. This is just me being an idiot. And now, here's our fantastic guest, a guy I truly enjoy talking with, Nardeep Kirby. Uh, Nardeep Kirby, welcome to Movie Maker, and congratulations on your debut feature film. Uh, you directed this, you star in it. Can you tell me a little bit about the film and um, what people should expect? Ah, thanks. And thanks for having me on the on the podcast. Uh, so uh, Land of Gold is about Karen, a Punjabi American truck driver who's expecting his first child and is absolutely terrified. So he takes one last long haul drive cross country before his baby's due uh, to, you know, clear his head and figure, you know, his shit out. And along the way, he discovers a 10 year old undocumented Mexican-American girl stowed away in his trailer. So yeah. what was supposed to be this trip to to figure his stuff out? becomes a surrogate father-daughter story where he's learning to be a father in the moment and help this young woman uh, find family. Yeah. What's the backstory of the film? Why did you want to make this? Yeah. You know, the backstory, it, it comes from a different, a uh, couple different places. Uh, I had been, you know, trying to figure out what that first feature wanted to be. You know, there's always this question of like, okay, what is your first feature going to be? How are you going to put all your chips in this one basket? You know, that could happen or not happen. And uh, I, I, I really wanted to do something that expanded South Asian representation past a lot of the sort of typical stories we talk about, the immigration story, like our parents' immigration story, the arranged marriage story, like those kinds of things. They're great, but I wanted to try to move past it and tell a first-generation story that was a little bit different than what we've seen. And um, it was right around the time that uh, child separation at the border uh, was happening at this scale that was kind of massive and and incredibly inhumane, right? Like there are all these political sides to that to that topic, but like we, I think we can all understand that it's an inhumane thing to separate a small child from their family members and punish them for something that wasn't their um, their choice. Yeah. And you know, within my own South Asian community, I started to to hear a lot of that conservative rhetoric around like, well, they should wait in line. There's a right way to do this, and I was shocked. Uh, because 
I was like, well, we're immigrants. You know, I'm an immigrant. And how can you not be at the very least sympathetic, if not empathetic to this cause of these people trying to give their children a better life, which is the same reason like we came here to give ourselves a better life. And I really wanted to explore that, especially because the Punjabi and the Mexican community have such a rich history and untold history in the United States dating back to the late 1800s, which is another project I was working on. And so like that kind of like all went into the soup that made Land of Gold happen. And then me kind of starting to reconcile, you know, sort of fears of becoming a father and, and, and what that sort of immigrant experience and, and for lack of a better term, traumatic immigrant experience can, can sort of do as you pass that on to, you know, uh, subsequent generations. And how do you learn and grow from that to be a better parent to those kids who are going to have a, you know, uh, have a very specific experience in this country? Yeah, I want to ask you about your own personal experience and how you yeah. got to this point. But first, you mentioned to me before, we met at the Heartland Film Festival, yeah. and you mentioned the long history between the Punjabi community Punjabi community, and Mexican American mm-hmm. community, which I had no idea about at all. I did not know there was yeah. any intersection there. Can you just sort of school us on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. So uh, I didn't know this until I started doing the research. Actually, okay, so I'll tell you this. So I live in LA, and I was driving down the street, and I saw this 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 Indian restaurant, but it it also had like like a, a slightly like Spanish name. And mm-hmm. I went in there, and it was this hybrid Mexican Indian restaurant, Mexican Punjabi food in particular. And I was like, this is weird, but also makes a lot of sense because yeah. like the flavors are very similar, and it was very tasty. And I started doing research on this. I was like, "This is this just a culinary thing that happened in Southern California, or what is this?" And you know, in my research, most people, South Asians included, think that our immigration, like the mass immigration that started, was in the '60s, post Civil Rights Act, when we could like come here and get green cards, the whole thing. But the reality is, the first Indian immigrants, uh, South Asian immigrants to America, uh, were Punjabi immigrants in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they were loggers and farmers, blue collar workers coming to the United States to do, you know, the the logging, the farming work. Uh, and the idea was to bring their families over, their loved ones, and start lives in America. But as uh, the United States loves to do, uh, we passed an immigration ban called the Asian Exclusion Act. And uh, it was, you know, targeted towards Chinese and Japanese business people because they were buying up a lot of farms and like owning land. And the United States was like, no, well, we don't want this to happen, which is dumb. Uh, But it targeted all immigrants from the Asian continent. So Hmm. these Punjabi farmers were basically stranded here. And uh, if they left, they could never come back and they couldn't bring people over because there were quotas put on how many Asian immigrants could come to the country. So as these Punjabi immigrants started moving south uh, from Oregon and Washington into California, settling in like central California, Yuba City is like a big like hotspot, right? Uh, It was around the same time Mexican migration started happening north. And what was happening was you had these Punjabi farmers, these Mexican farmers, and the lifestyle was similar. And even though they didn't speak the same language, they lived the same lifestyle. They had the same cultural background, family unit being important, the same type of food. They understood how to live in the same way. So they started forming these bonds and marrying and starting families. And like the, the this Mexican Punjabi hybrid culture kind of uh, sort of blew up during the Asian Exclusion Act and still exists today in pockets of Southern California, Central California, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, it's kind of spread out. And 
as I was learning about this and researching this, again, I'm always looking at like, okay, what is an American story, right? Particularly from a BIPOC perspective, there's so many versions of what that can be. And to me, I was like, wow, can you get more American than two, you know, communities of color who have been marginalized by the country they want to call home, banding together to find their piece of the pie, to give their kids something greater. And, uh, you know, so I was working on that project and I'm still working on that thing because it's like a big epic. It involves World War One and all that stuff. Like, you know, the United States promised citizenship to Asian folks if they fought in the war and then they came back and they didn't get it. Um, But uh, Land of Gold with the Punjabi and the Mexican kind of influences and the sharing of cultures. And again, that sort of inhumanity that I was hearing in terms of this sort of humanitarian crisis. Uh, Mm -hmm. I wanted to sort of homage that experience that is like a very like untapped part of history in the United States that, you know, people don't know. Um, And this is like my like little sort of teaser into that sort of hybrid, beautiful kind of culture. Yeah, I really love that. It, it, there's such a vested interest. I find myself talking about this a lot lately um, with friends. There's such a vested interest in people, you know, being divided and in saying, yeah. you know, you're the good immigrants and these are the bad immigrants yeah. and trying to create a, a crabs in a barrel mentality. And it's just a beautiful thing when people, especially people a hundred years ago, were like, no, we refuse to be crabs. Like we're not yeah. gonna all over each other. We're going to support each other. And I just think that's a it's a beautiful story and it's really reflected in your film. So, you know, thank you. Thank you. You know, it like to, to it, it's, it's like the colonialized mind, right? We're all still decolonizing ourselves like one day at a time. And, and I think one of that piece, one of those pieces is the fact that like the ruling class often pits us against each other. Cause you know, it's like that old adage, like if the mob is attacking itself, it won't attack the people mm-hmm. in power. And I think that's a very common thing with between BIPOC communities where it's like, you know, if we're all thinking that we're in this alone, opposed to it being together, because we all want the same things, right? It's, yeah. uh, uh, it's easier for us to be disenfranchised, um, because we're disenfranchising ourselves at times. No, it's not just the system. Sometimes we do it to ourselves through thoughts. Um, and again, that was what I was experiencing through that South Asian community during those elections where it was like, what are we, are we thinking about this in the most accurate way or most loving way the like kindness are we leading with kindness and just basic decency um yeah. so yeah and and resist the pull up the ladder mentality like i got in so it's over now yeah exactly like you know that is something that i that i i've experienced like from sort of the older generation of this like i got in i'm fine i got mine yeah. you know it's it's almost like a like a <laughs> it's kind of like a baby boomer uh, mentality um, but, uh, I, I see it like warping and changing very actively and, and, yeah. and it's kind of beautiful to see that like arms are opening and, and minds are slowly changing away from that, you know, and I get it too. It's like the immigrant mentality. We want, we come here, we want to, you know, we come here to make a better life and what is going to make a better life income economics money. Yeah. And, you know, you want to hold on to that as tight as possible. And then it's easy to get kind of like twisted with rhetoric and forget about like, hey, what's the humanity in this story, not just the statistic or whatever. Yeah. So tell me your personal story. How did you become a filmmaker? It it often starts in childhood. Um, (laughs) Start wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as I said, I am an immigrant. I was born in Switzerland. Uh, I know you probably wouldn't expect that, but I was born in Switzerland and uh, moved to the United States when I was about like four and a half, five years old. 
moved to the suburbs of Philly, um, predominantly New Jersey oh. and Philly, uh, really? Pennsylvania. Uh, Downingtown, Pennsylvania is where I would call home. Holy um, shit, my parents are from Swarthmore and they still live in that area. Oh, no way. Yeah. So you know exactly where I like, like, like you have an idea of where I grew up, right? I was halfway yeah. between Amish country and Philly, um, which you meant- say, You say Wooder is the real question. Wooder. Okay, great. Wooder. This is also the time in the last like two weeks that the correct pronunciation of water has come up. So I'm super, <laughs> didn't know we we're kindred spirits. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Water, oh. orange. Yeah, it's all that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I grew up in like, you know, halfway between Amish country and Philly, particularly when I grew up in Downingtown, it was a very white community. And uh, I was like the one brown kid um, or one of a handful of, you know, brown kids. So making friends was really hard for me growing up. And, um, you know, I would often get bullied and 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 all that. And there was a moment where I realized if I could make people laugh, they wouldn't want to bully me. Like they wouldn't want to pants me. They would just laugh and walk away. And that kind of dovetailed into performing and acting. So, you know, once I got the sort of like the the confidence to go audition for the school musicals and the school plays and community theater, I started like doing that thing. And there was this very conscious choice for myself where I was like, you know what? I don't want these people to know me for what I am, which was like my skin tone. I was known as the Indian kid or whatever. I want them to know me for 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 the things that I want them to know me for, like the things I was doing and the things I was interested and passionate about. Yeah. So I had like gone into acting and was doing that thing. And I was also like very involved with student council and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I, I love photography. And I think like my younger years of just like not having a lot of friends, I was always observing. So I loved mm -hmm. photography. And we were very fortunate to have in high school a video applications class. Uh, Mr. Deal, if he ever was listening to this podcast, Mr. Deal, oh, he had a, lot, he had a big influence on me, right? So we, you know, learned to use, I think at that point, it was like Sony Vegas or movie, like, or movie magic editing or and then eventually premiere if we were like advanced enough to learn it. But we were basically using basic editing and we would like use DV cameras and shoot little short films and music videos or whatever and learn to montage images to whatever. So I started making films and I realized, oh, I can be in control of the 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 narrative. Um, I was doing the show Oklahoma. Everyone knows Oklahoma. Uh -huh. And I was playing Ali Hakim or Ali Hakim. And it like hit me. I was like, wow, as an actor and as a brown actor, I'm so subservient and 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 dependent on someone casting me, thinking broadly, or me having to have something that's like very culturally specific to get cast. But mm -hmm. as the writer, as the director, as the creator, I can do whatever I want. And and so that's kind of what like segued me into filmmaking as opposed to just acting. And uh, I wound up going to NYU for uh, film school and was acting in people's projects there, doing some like off-Broadway theater while I was making my own films. And uh, and uh, yeah, and then post-graduating college after making some short films and stuff, I worked in the fashion industry for a while, freelancing, you know, gigging, editing, producing, editing. It's that terrible word, predating, uh, that they <laughs> that they had for a while. And then we realized we should not be using this term, um, <laughs> producer editing. And, uh, and I like did like really shitty night job graveyard shifts. Like I was dubbing tapes and uh, like transcribing raw footage of of reality documentary shows, which was awful. Um, My best friend was, had that job for the longest time. And, yeah, yeah, and, like kind of fascinating, like kind of hypnotic. But yeah, yeah. Oh, 
I had a friend who was working, who was going to school at the, at a, at the, at a, I think the French Culinary Institute in New York. So my job started at 9 p.m. in Union Square and she would meet me with her home, with her assignment, which was usually a tart or like a cake or something. And I would take that into the office and then put in like one DVD and just sit there watching it the whole time, transcribing, eating these fucking cakes. And I'm sorry, I swear. I said, I said at the F word. I'm so sorry. For those of you out there, uh, but uh, like I gained so much weight doing that job because I just was sedentary at night, like a vampire eating cake, watching uh, parking enforcement officers. Uh, oh, you had that shit. show! I love I had that, that show. show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> my friend said that he watched hours and hours of reality producers going like, "I'm going to use the word they actually used." Like, so would you say she's a bitch? And they'd be like, "Um, yeah, I guess so." And then they go, "No, I mean, would you say?" She's a bitch. And they're like, oh, got it. She's a bitch. Like, <laughs> like that was <laughs> just. Yo, like... I had to transcribe that. I had to transcribe that stuff. And I'd be like, oh, there's drama. There's drama here. <laughs> and then, yeah. So I did all that. I worked at a tech startup company called Howcast, which was like specialized in how to videos. Like I was hustling and grinding, right? Trying to figure my shit out. And right. uh, whatever like piece of money I could, I would reinvest it into a short film, make it experiment with style, with the writing, with whatever. And, um, you know, some experiments did not go well. Some went <laughs> better than others. And uh, that eventually led me to the point here where, uh, you know, uh, I made my first feature. And you've done a lot of acting along the way. Uh, you've yeah. made a lot of shorts. Um, you were in a very big film at South by Southwest, Dance Dads. Yeah. You've done you've done quite a bit. How many shorts did you do? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean. Yeah, I mean, in college, I was a little bit of an overachiever. I did kind of, I kind of made two thesis films because mm -hmm. I just was like, well, I'm here to make shorts. And then after college, I made, man, probably like five or six short films that I wrote. And then I directed a couple of web series, one which was like 32 episodes, 31 episodes, the other one, which was about seven or eight. And they're all like mini short films, like like very like highly produced things. You know, I made a bunch of stuff. I was like working on the craft, but I was also trying to pay the bills. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, I was actively trying to use these ways, these projects as a way to both build my craft hone my craft, but also, you know, pay my rent. Um, so like it, a lot of comedy stuff, you know, I, I went to UCB and I met a lot of friends there and we started doing comedy stuff, sketch. We shot a lot of sketches and then web series kind of like, like a, I did this web series called The Achiever, which is very similar to like Intone to Master of None. So like each episode was like a contained short film. And, um, and then, you know, I did this adaptation of Flowers for Algernon with my friend Patrick and- wow. you know, yeah, we did it like vlog style. So we were like experimenting, you know, because the the book is a journal entry. So we we transitioned that into vlogs and, um, you know, basically just kept trying to make stuff and create because, uh, you know, this industry can kick you in the butt <laughs> when you're just like kind of like floating. And my happy place is always in process. Yeah. And when I'm not in process, I tend to get sad. So I was like, okay, what can we make? What can we make? What can we make? And while I was doing that, again, it was just reinvesting in the things that like were kind of like filling my soul in terms of the shorts and trying to find my voice or refine my voice or, you know, re-examine like, I constantly doing this is like re-examining why am I telling stories and why am I telling stories now? Because yeah. that can change, right? Like the reason I was telling stories 10 years ago or 15 years ago is different than why I'm telling them now. So um yeah, so I made a bunch of stuff 
again, some less successful than others, but uh, mm -hmm. proud of all of them. What what years were you you see? Uh, I'm going to use the the proper name for anybody who doesn't know. What years were you at the Upright Citizens Brigade? Gosh, so I did it in before 2008. Like I did it when I was living in New York. So at some point, probably maybe 2010 or something like that. And then I also did like a class here uh, to, to kind of brush up on it in LA when I moved out here. So probably 2012 or 13, I think. Uh, yeah, the, the years, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old, man. The years are fading together. We were taking UCB classes at the same time because I had a bunch yeah. of friends doing it and I was in around like 2000. Uh, I want to say like 2007 through 2009 ish, something like that. It was, oh. it was super fun. They had probably saw you perform. It wasn't memorable. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, but it's, no, it's great. It's great. I always recommend like writers take like improv classes because it's writing in the moment. And yeah. it's like, it's very much like the yes and rule. Like it's just like when you're stuck in and have writer's block or something, knowing and embracing the yes and rule is like a godsend because you may not get anything magical from it, but it'll keep you going. And maybe something will come of it that it'll be like, whoa, I would never have thought of that. And like, yeah, that's just because you went on the train. Just like to recognize game and what a bit is and when you're messing up a bit is almost more helpful in real life than it is in improv scenes. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> like it's, it's a really good thing if people are able to check it out. Like even if you just take like one or two classes, it's really, really, really fun. Like yeah. I think it's one of the most fun things I've ever done. And there's a reason why corporate corporations hire like improv actors to come in and do like ice breaking and like, like team building exercises. It's cause it's like, it's perfectly tailor made for that stuff. Yeah. Well, let's jump ahead like a decade ish. Um, <laughs> okay. I, would you say the feature is the big break? Like, is that, is this the thing that you feel really pushed you over the top? Oh yeah. Big time, big time. Um, you know, everyone talks about that big break and like the, 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 the success story. And I'm definitely, like you said, a decade, I'm a 10 to 15 year overnight success. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I had been applying for like Sundance lab, these diversity initiatives, like all of these things for years and have made it to like the second round of the nickel fellowship or the second round of Sundance lab and then nothing. So right. like, I haven't really had a, a, the sort of, um, institutional support uh in my career up until uh making this movie um you know um i wound up getting um some producers on board paulavi sastry and kirtana sastry and they really supported this script while i was writing it and again we applied to a lot of these programs and uh as we were starting to get our kind of conversations together for financing uh, i found this new program called the at&t untold stories program and uh, it had been running for three years and I didn't realize, I didn't really understand why most people didn't know about it because it was a million dollar grant to make your movie. Yeah. Um, so I was like, yeah, let's apply to that. What if we get a million dollars to make this movie? And I applied and we wound up becoming finalists and then we wound up winning it, uh, well, which was, which was nuts, like completely unexpected. But that is, you know, for sure, uh, this sort of big break because that was the first time um, not only did I have like people really supporting and believing me, but had that institutional support, um, you know, where it was like, Hey, we believe in you. Here's this grant, go make your thing. Um, we believe in you, um, which is like a really big thing, particularly in the arts to have people believe in you. That's like half the battle. And yeah, totally yeah. Hands off. They never said, by the way, uh, he needs to make a crucial call. 
using AT&T. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. Yeah. So like AT&T basically just gives, it gives us the money and uh, the Tribeca Institute uh, kind of mentors us, you know, they'll give us some feedback on the script, but they liked the script the way it was. Right. So they gave us some feedback like, Hey, maybe this would make it stronger, this thing, whatever. And, but ultimately they were like, the decision is yours. You're making your movie. We're here to support you, which was like a re really crazy feeling because, you know, it's it's both liberating and terrifying because you're yeah. like oh okay so yeah you you believe in me all right i'm going to go do my thing and uh yeah we 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 won this big grant and at the Tribeca festival in 2021 and then the the deal is you make your film and you premiere at the Tribeca festival the next year so we premiered last year at the 2022 Tribeca festival after like an 11 and a half months of insanity wow. and um yeah yeah well you're gonna you've already written a story for the next issue of movie maker coming out yep. this summer and i don't want to ruin too much of it but can you tell me about some of the insanity <laughs> some of the insanity that you write about in the issue yeah sure uh yeah we'll, we'll tease it a little bit so you know when i say insanity it's like any movie getting anything made even if it's a short film right it's a miracle because you have to have so many stars that align and then like People have to watch it and hopefully respond to it and hopefully resonates with it. But with this film, it was our first feature uh, for for majority of the key team members. So we were basically like loaded into a rocket and shot off to the moon. <laughs> Once we got that million dollar grant, we like we won the the day we won it. We literally started making calls that night of like, okay, so we had to start pre production. Great. So we filmed the movie in Oklahoma. Um, we had like two and a half months of rapid pre-production to get this thing together, to go to Oklahoma, to film this thing for seven weeks. Uh, our, you know, I was the lead actor in it as well, which meant we had to I go just ahead. make a quick observation here. You yeah. went from being in high school, being having a small role in Oklahoma to starring in your own movie in the actual state of Oklahoma. I just think Isn't that that's nuts. Cool. <laughs> Isn't that nuts? Just I hope you took a minute and just gave yourself props because that is awesome. You know, you saying that right now actually makes, I never even realized that. I never realized that's insane. <laughs> I didn't mean to break up your flow, but it's no, but that's in it for a minute because that's really cool. Yo, that's dope. That's crazy. I never even thought of it that way. That play Oklahoma, I had such, that kind of changed my gears and what to do. And then I made my first movie in Oklahoma. Wow. That's nuts. I think it's awesome. It just that's it really that, cool. That happened. <laughs> that's really cool. Okay, that's <laughs> great. Um, well, yeah. All right, I'm gonna take that story to the bank. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So we shot in Oklahoma, and you know, I, as I said, this movie is a it's a road trip with a with a Punjabi American who I played and uh, an, a 10 year old Mexican American, right? So, you know, we had to do our, our national casting search to find our actor because the whole movie hinges on this relationship. And we found this beautiful, beautiful performer out of Long Island, uh, Caroline Valencia, who, you know, when you see the film, uh, I think she'll really stun you because, uh, you know, she, she really brings it and she's really, yeah. really a, quite a beautiful discovery in this film. Um, so vulnerable, so, so heartwarming. And once we had her, we got our pieces together. We went to Oklahoma and we shot this indie film for a million bucks over the course of seven weeks. And like for anybody out there who had, who, who has not made a movie a million dollars, you know, you're like, Oh yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, uh, most of like the big indie films you see like at the Oscars or at the 
whatever, they have far more money than a million dollars to make their film. So, um, you know, we really stretched it. My producing team really stretched that money. You know, Paul Levy, Kirtana, Simon, the, 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 you know, my, my line producer, Julie Rose, the Lance or AD, like everybody that like basically helped make this film really stretched that money as far as we could, because the only thing I asked for, I was like, I need time. It's a road trip movie. There's so many stops along the way. You know, we 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 made the filmmaking marry to what could work well with that. But also I was like, if I'm acting in it, you know, we had an acting coach on set, Kate Kugler. I was like, the, 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 we need time to make sure that this relationship between Kieran and Elena makes, makes sense and works because that's what the movie's going to hinge on. And um, so they were like, okay, here's your time. And uh, and I also am very proud that we did everything equitably with time. And, you know, it was right. We shot at the height of Delta, which is also when IATSE was striking. And mm. um, we really wanted to support uh, that. So we made sure we did 12-hour days with top to bottom, including turnarounds. So no one was working overtime. Everyone mm. got to go home with their families and, like, you know, have dinner or whatever. Um, and so we were trying to do it all equitably uh, within that budget range and and then also get it all done before the Tribeca debut. Uh, uh, I remember I sent the DCP in three or four days before we premiered and I didn't even watch it because we just had to send it. Um, so wow. that premiere day, I just was like, is it going to play? Is, is it going to work? Is, it, is, it, is this even working? I wasn't even like watching the audience. I was just watching the DCP to be like, is this still working? Is like, did, are there any glitches? <laughs> Which oh is insane. Gosh. I yeah, mean, the, yeah. the, I saw by the time I saw it, it looked great. So, I, and I assume it, was, it looked great at Tribeca. It did. It did. It looked fantastic. Like everybody, the whole team, like, you know, our colorist Josh and our sound mixer, Aiden, like everyone, Aiden, he, like everyone did such an amazing job on it. I didn't have anything to worry about, but it's like, this is your baby. This is like, like you said, this is your big break, right? And this was the biggest audience that was going to like see it. And like, it's a 350 seat theater in New York sold out. I, I shared this story at Tribeca, but that theater is the Village East Cinema in the East Village. And when I went to NYU, my first like quote unquote job in the industry was handing out flyers in December dressed like a lobster for people to go see this movie, Brooklyn Lobster. A great movie. Uh, but that was like my first job in the industry was handing out flyers like grassroots style, right? And then I get to premiere my first film in that same theater, uh, like, you know, a decade later or whatever. Um, That's better uh, than the Oklahoma thing. <laughs> it's both. I mean, that they work together, right? It's part and parcel. Um, so yeah, I'm like ran I'm like going all over the place right now. No, but, this is uh, great. Yeah, but I, I, I'll hint at that article. Y'all should read it. Uh, we talk about... <laughs> You know, uh, you'll learn the secrets of how you shoot a road trip on a semi truck specifically mm -hmm. with a nine year old and the director who's also acting in it. Uh, and it's 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 probably in a way you wouldn't expect. So I'd highly recommend reading that article. And a little help from the Cherokee Nation. Yes, the Cherokee Nation. A lot of help from the Cherokee Nation. A lot of help. Yeah. You know, making your any movie again, like I said, is a miracle. And it's really just like who is able to support you and uh of all places the Cherokee Nation wound up supporting this film in the most beautiful way possible and um again not wanting to spoil that article I'm forever indebted and grateful to them for opening up their arms uh and studio yeah. to us to to help us make this movie and technology ooh spoilers <laughs> <laughs> so by the time people hear this the movie's in theaters October um I just said October, I was about to say October 15th, which tells you how much sleep I get. Um, <laughs> May 15th. Uh, 
it, so it'll be in it'll have it'll be in theaters May fifth to the eleventh, mm -hmm. and uh, and then we will be premiering on HBO Max May fifteenth. Yes, yeah. absolutely awesome. Where yeah. where everybody can check this out and see it for themselves. Yeah, exciting. You're getting your first reviews and they're good. You got yeah. positive reviews. You got like extremely good festival reviews. And now it's out in the wild with people who didn't have any expectation or know anything about it or know any of this backstory. Um, and we were talking a little bit before this started about just the reality of critics now, where oftentimes they have a bunch of films to review, they're on deadline, um, they just have to get something out. And sometimes they're reviewing based on the movie that they think it's going to be or that they want it to be rather than the movie that you set out to make. Um, yeah. And that's something, while your reviews have been positive, that's something that's taken a little bit of adjusting for you. Um, yeah. You this movie for two years, three years, and writing even before that, um, they've lived, they live with it for an hour and they might go, oh, I thought this was going to be more like this. It's not. So um, not my bag. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, making your first feature, you think like the big jump to making the first feature is making the thing, right? And I often found that like, it actually wasn't that. Like having come from short films, like it's just like a longer schedule. Instead of a sprint with a short film, it's a marathon with a feature and you just have to learn tone and pacing over the course of a longer form type thing. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't, you know, even master filmmakers don't do great jobs sometimes. But I think the big part of like the adjustment for me has been the industry stuff and adjusting to expectations, both my own expectations and like other expectations and, and, and remembering that, you know, we make these films not in a vacuum. We make these films to be seen. And, and that means everyone's got their own opinion about it. And they get to have that because that's what the work is. That's what it's for, right? Like you make it, you make it, you have to make it in your own vacuum and you've got to make it in such a way that you're proud and you're, and, and you're happy with it. And you're ready to like, this is the best version of this story that I can tell right now with what I've got. And, and I believe in this thing. And then you have to let it go. Yeah. And it, it's, it's like for all those first time filmmakers that are about to make their first features or, or like, you know, or it's, it's. I think it's got to be just let go at that point because when other people get to see it, it's not even just like the good stuff is great and then you walk away from it and then the bad stuff <laughs> will happen and you have to walk away from it because it's again, it's just opinions and it's just like this person thinks that, that person thinks that and you know, people will be critical about stuff and that's okay. I, I, the way I look at it, I think Darren Aronofsky said something that I always kind of live by. And he's like, I never want to make a movie that's just mediocre. I either want people to love it or hate it because that means they had an emotional reaction. And that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I look at this stuff. Like I'm like, okay, if someone loved it, great. I know they had an emotional reaction. They enjoyed it. But if someone didn't like it, it's almost more of a badge of honor because you made them have a critical response and you made them have an emotional reaction. And yeah, it might've been something that they weren't expecting or they may have wanted something different, but that doesn't mean what you made is necessarily less strong or weak. It just means it's not their cup of tea and they had an emotional reaction to it. So I'll take that any day of the week when someone has a reaction to the work and, 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 you know, that means I made choices. And I think that's what it is. Like you never want to make something and feel like you just phoned it in. I'm like, no, okay. I made choices and they worked for some people and they didn't work for other people, but ultimately I made the choices I make and, and you own that and you can move on and live and you can live with that. I think that's the thing, right? Like yeah. you don't make something 
that you think someone wants. You make the thing that you want because you can live with that and you yeah. can hold on to that, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's complicated, but you know, you gotta, it's all, it's, it's like, like, look, I mean, you understand why like painters do it in solitary yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's a vulnerable thing to put your work and yourself out there. Um, and, and you just kind of have to let go. <laughs> it sounds kind of like nihilistic in some way, but it's like the only healthy way you kind of kind of have to just create and let go, create and let go. Well, it's also cool when people critique like the, the way that you got to a certain place in the story, as opposed to this, per no one is going to give you a review that says they don't know what they're doing. The boom slipped into the shot. These lines <laughs> are terrible. The sound is bad. No one is yeah. going to give you any of those criticisms. They know that you, they're engaging with you as somebody who knows what you're doing. Um, yeah. And even, and no one's been adversarial with you. Nobody's been like harshly no. critical. But no. even, even if they were, there's some honor in, I see what you did and I don't like it, as opposed yeah. to, it was incoherent and I don't understand what you were trying to do. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's where you take it and you take the badge of honor, right? It's like, I think something about, criticism it's easy it's easy to take it really personally but if you've done the work and someone just pre would have preferred something different and they can articulate that that's great yeah. i think that ultimately that means that's great that means like you did make choices and you chose to do something and it just didn't work for someone and that's fine there's plenty of things that don't work for me that work for plenty of other people right and i might have to think the same thing it's not that i think the thing is bad it's just like oh i would have made different choices and i think you know, when people can articulate what it is that they would have liked differently, that means something was working, you know? Um, it's like when I go into like a note session on a script, if I don't have a note or I don't have a thought, that usually means that the script's not working and like, it's like fundamentally not working. But yeah. if I have like thoughts that I can add to it and like, oh, you could go this direction or that direction or what this, that or the other, then it's up to taste. Then it's, then we're purely in taste world. And that's yeah. subject and that's subjectivity. And now we're in the the beautiful gray of art, right? Where it's like, you know, people will love it or people will hate it. And like that's what you want. You don't necessarily want people to be forgetting it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have one absolutely ridiculous question. Please. But it's been nagging at me the whole time. And there was no appropriate time. We're talking about very serious stuff. And so I couldn't <laughs> get into it. <laughs> The Punjabi Mexican restaurant sounds like it would have to be the best restaurant in the world because those are the two best types of food. If they could bring sushi into it somehow, that would probably, <laughs> that might mess it up. That might just be too di too different. <laughs> too different. How good was the restaurant? Yo, it was delicious. It was delicious. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 it, 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 you're right. It works so well together. It, the food was so good. Like tortillas and roti. Right. Tortillas and roti, they're like, okay, right. Yeah. Flatbread, uh, simple, right. Chilies. It's just different types of chilies. And then the sauce, right. Salsa or chutney or things like that. Like it all makes so much sense. I think what I had there, and this is like years ago, right. I think what I had there was basically, uh, it was like Indian tacos. So oh, I had like a, so I had a sampler, right. So they use like a flour. They basically used a, like a roti or uh, and then did like a chicken tikka masala type thing. Then they did like a barbacoa, but with like some sort of mint chutney type thing or whatever. It was just delicious. It was just like made, it just made all the sense. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, this is perfect. I'm so hungry now and I'm going to go get something on like a vending machine and it's going to be such a letdown. <laughs> 
sorry. You do go. Don't go to the vending machine. Order some delivery. <laughs> I'm in Massachusetts. We'll have a good. We'll have either good Punjabi or good Mexican. There's no way we're gonna get them together. Like, you know what? You know what you could do. You could just order some good Mexican food and some good Punjabi food, and then just like shovel yeah, yeah. it all in your mouth at the same time, and then the flavors mix. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's the way to do it. I'm gonna wait until May 15th, and I'm gonna do it while watching your film again on HBO Max. I would. That would be great. That would be a great way to do it. <laughs> I think that's where we stop. Probably. That sounds good. <laughs> I don't know where this 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 train went, but I love it. I love where we. I love the station we landed at.